Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that goes beyond the headlines and instead lurks in that sort of no man's land around page 19, where you're not sure if it's a sketch or real, but it doesn't matter because on the other side, there's a story about how shoes give you cancer. This is episode 150. I'm Tina Duyev, and this week, as cadaverous, possessed footstool and Brexit Party MEP Anne Widdicombe said in her maiden speech at the European Parliament that Britain leaving the EU was like the emancipation of slaves, I'm guessing that judging by some of the racist comments she's made before, that means Widdicombe is actually against Brexit and will do all she can to make sure British history books largely ignore it. Ah, the summertime, when Brits love travelling all over Europe in order to make a total arse of themselves, dressing absurdly, making lots of noise, demanding they get British things and at no point considering how the locals might feel about it. As European Parliament opened last week, British Remain and Leave MEPs took to their seats, many for the first time, and acted like the far-removed family member that you didn't want to but had to invite, knowing full well they'll drink all the booze, call your partner something awful and then fall asleep on the floor while wetting themselves. The Liberal Democrat MEPs wore their bollocks to Brexit t-shirts because nothing gets a message across more than people wearing a naughty word to a formal institution. Yeah, that'll show them. But why stop there, Lib Dems? Why not really hammer home your campaign by wearing odd socks, saying arse while coughing, (coughs) arse, when other people speak, and as you leave, just gently kicking a bin? On the other side of the debate, Brexit Party MEPs chose to show their rebellion by standing up and turning their backs when a youth quartet played the European anthem, Ode to Joy. I mean, it is very much within their remit to ignore young people having an opportunity to express their talents. Many complained and said that turning your backs was similar to what the Nazis did to the Speaker of the German Reichstag in 1930, but is also similar to what 40 female delegates did in the Canadian Parliament to protest the mistreatment of Indigenous women, several hundred New York cops did to the mayor in protest of violence towards police, or hundreds of protesters did at the funeral of former Prime Minister and Gary Oldman's Dracula, Margaret Thatcher, though that may have been out of safety in case she'd risen 
frozen up again and looked any of them in the eyes, turning them to stone. So while it is easy to compare the Brexit party to Nazis, especially as they look like they've had their faces melted by the Ark of the Covenant too, this backturning was likely just a really stupid way to protest against music that they'd still be able to hear whatever way round they were standing. I mean, they may as well have complained about dinner by popping earplugs in, or, I don't know, protested against a system by standing to be elected to be part of it and getting paid a hefty salary and pension by them. Oh, oh well. Brexit party leader and giant collapsed lung Nigel Farage said that his party weren't disrespectful as what was disrespectful was taking the ancient nation-states of Europe and turning them into one country with its own anthem and flag without asking for permission. Which makes you wonder why he doesn't turn his back on the British anthem, especially when used for Commonwealth occasions. Then days later, Anne Widdicombe made her maiden speech in the EU Parliament where she spent over two minutes proving she had no idea how to use a microphone and said Britain were the oppressed and the EU the oppressors as she, oppressed by a fat salary and pension will definitely know. Maybe the only way Widdicombe can truly feel free is if she had those benefits removed and was just left in a forest somewhere truly liberated and able to emit high-pitched yelling wildly at night until she's eaten by a badger who thinks she's a distressed toad. These weren't the only protests on EU Parliament's first day of sitting for this term, as there were also two independent Irish MEPs who wore free Assange t-shirts because apparently it was where your issues that the EU can't really do anything about to work day. I probably also missed some Croatian MEPs with their t-shirts showing solidarity to the Robot World Cup and one MEP from Hungary donning one that said in big letters that Ariel the Mermaid should be played by a white actress. Events were also disrupted by hundreds of Catalan separatists protesting outside as their elected MEPs had been blocked from taking their seats by Spanish authorities who refused to recognise them. Maybe they should all wear masks of the faces of the Spanish MEPs so they definitely know who they are and each parliamentary session would start like the film Us. Yet there was a good reason to protest from all MEPs as the EU leaders ditched their previous system of Spitzen candidate where the person who can hock a loogie furthest becomes European Commission President. No, sorry, I mean it's a lead candidate system allowing each country to put forward a nominee. Except this time, instead of that, all the leaders just put forward Ursula van der Leyen who's rumoured to be played by Melissa McCarthy in the Disney reboot. Yes, that's two live-action Little Mermaid gags in just one podcast. You're welcome. Van der Leyden is the German defence minister as well as Emma Thompson villain and is not a popular choice, especially in Germany where she's currently involved in a financial scandal. Still, that does mean that if she makes it through, Farage might finally find the EU Parliament has a president he can relate to. Italian socialist and Dave Allen, but after he died tribute, David Sassoli, was elected as European Parliament president. But there has been criticism as while Sassoli's ideology means the EU have political balance across the board, he's now the seventh EU Parliament president from Italy and the second in a row after his predecessor Antonio Tajani. Which doesn't really make sense considering that Italians are always terrible behind the wheel. Back in the UK, politics is still embroiled in the Conservative leadership battle in a fight where whoever wins, we all very much lose. Watching the campaigns of posh Chris Griffin, Boris Johnson and a man who always looks like he's just been hit in the face with a large plank of wood, Jeremy Hunt, is a bit like trying to enjoy charting the trajectories of an asteroid that's about to collide with the Earth. Pointing and wooing at how it's just skimmed Ganymede with a lovely loop motion, trying to distract from knowing that we all just have weeks till we're either crushed instantly by a fat alien rock or inhaling vast quantities of sulphur dioxide like a piglet its farts directly into our lungs. According to polls, Boris Johnson is in the lead by quite a margin, everyone involved being an error. Because when it's choice between the worst ever foreign secretary and total arsehole, or worst ever health secretary and second worst ever foreign secretary and total arsehole, you may as well go for the one that might get trampled to death on a diplomatic trip to Mongolia by several yaks desperate to mate with him, giving at least a glimmer of hope for the country. 
I would say it's amazing Boris is doing so well, but his leadership campaign is being run by the only Velociraptor MP in Parliament, Ian Duncan-Smith. So that means even if Johnson really, really isn't fit to work as Prime Minister, IDS will try his best to make it look like he is. How else do you explain twice as many Conservative voters backing Boris, despite two weeks that have included him avoiding debates, saying he made sacrifices to be a politician, not meaning extreme Bullingdon Club initiations, just his own vast earnings, and saying that in his spare time he builds model buses? It's startling that he chooses buses, mainly due to his history of either lying on them or overheating them in real life. I wonder if he also has a tiny model of a garden bridge and a cable car that he's fashioned out of cereal boxes, and perhaps if we can see the whole collection, we might be able to work out what he'll fuck up next. I've got a feeling there's a scale construction of Britain made out of loo rolls and pasta bits. In between, Boris has had photo ops of him kissing puppies, which, if I'm correct, was a wire-haired, dish-faced, prick-eared, selectively bred southern hound, but I'm not sure what the puppy was. Getting heckled at a garden centre, which shows that he'd be outwitted by a nursery, and visiting the Heck Sausages factory, which has caused many to say that they'll boycott the brand, especially as only previously the pork purveyors were talking about how no deal would ruin their business, yet here they are championing Johnson. Or chances are he just wandered in and they thought he was part of their produce that had tried to escape, and it was too late before they realised they were wrong. As for policies, well, so far, apart from the previous pledge to let rich people pay less tax, because nothing gets public approval than you proving you only read Robin Hood backwards as a child, Johnson's other policies include demanding all immigrants learn English in order to integrate into the UK. Because, as he said, there are too many parts of Britain where English isn't the first language. And this doesn't bode well for Wales, but it also ignores that to be truly British, anyone coming to the UK should refuse to learn the language and just point and shout at stuff they want until they get it. His sister, and probably winner of some Eurovision at some point in the 70s, Rachel Johnson, tweeted that they spoke ancient Greek at home, so she had no idea what he was talking about. Which does explain why so much of what Boris does is a tragedy. Johnson has also said there'd be a review of unhealthy food taxes, because after raising the 40p tax threshold, he then wants to make life easier for others like him, aka sugar daddies and the honey monster. Then there's Brexit, where Boris says the UK will definitely leave the EU on October 31st, and that he'll make sure the country will be match fit for no deal, though he didn't specify what game that'd be, or even if he meant sports match at all, or just a small splint of wood that lights easily and then burns out very quickly after starting a raging blaze. Johnson insists the UK has the fiscal firepower to survive a no deal, but Chancellor and Skeksis leader Philip Hammond says actually it'll cost around £90 billion and there'll be no money left for whoever the new leader is. Still, at least they get to leave a funny note for the new government when they lose a snap election and it'd be all anyone talks about for 10 years. <laughs> Am I right? Uh... Jeremy Hunt's campaign, on the other hand, has contained a moment of nominative determinism as he's promised a vote on repealing the fox hunting ban, something that his backer, disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox, is likely concerned about. Hunt said that fox hunting is part of British heritage, so I guess this is just the first in a long line of policy announcements of that sort of basis, including maybe bringing back hanging people, child labour and having the plague. Hunt has told Tory Islamophobes that he doesn't want their vote, which is the first noble thing that he's ever done. But with ITV News compiling a dossier of 181 members who've made anti-Islamic offences and 56% of members believing Islam is harmful to British life, it does mean that Hunt's probably just giving votes to Boris. Except Boris told a hustings last week that he also doesn't want people with that sort of prejudice in the party either, so I guess this means that he'd just expel himself and maybe that's a double win for Jeremy. It's very hard to tell. As for Brexit views, Hunt said that he'd back a no deal with a heavy heart, which is what happens when you have one made of stone, and that he'd tell businesses that go bust, as a result, that it was worth it, proving once again that he'd be that shit friend of a friend who insists they take you round a really great bar or club, and that after a group of you have been wandering round aimlessly for seven hours in the cold and dark, tired and lost, would exclaim what fun everyone had had. 
Hunt says that he'll have the UK leave on no deal by September the 30th, beating Johnson by a full month. Chances are Johnson will retaliate by saying it'll be August the 30th before Hunt vows to do it at the end of July and then Johnson has to plan to enact it in the past, meaning that Britain can't actually Brexit until time travel is invented. Which, let's face it, is as plausible a solution as having invisible technology for the Irish border. You'll be very pleased to know that if the UK does leave without a deal, that we're totally and utterly unprepared, with the former Brexit chief warning that it was fraught with risk and the civil servant in charge of no-deal planning quitting last week in order to join the private sector, almost proving on a smaller scale just how to leave with a deal. Ollie Robbins, chief Brexit negotiator and extended neck with glasses, will also quit once the new prime minister is chosen. So anyone who knows how to deal with a no-deal is going or gone, and everyone who doesn't is pushing for it. Still, as they say, ignorance is bliss, and maybe if you can just close your eyes and pretend you can't see a six-month queue on the M20, then maybe it isn't there. Meanwhile, current Prime Minister and harried petrified bird's nest Theresa May is having to spend her last few days in office defending the UK's ambassador to Washington and Liam Fox clone number 17, Sir Kim Darroch, after he called the Trump administration inept in leaked emails. Oh, it's so nice that someone in government is honest for once, eh? Levy, you have demanded that Darroch should be replaced with a favourite of the US president and scorched rucksack full of lipids, Donald Trump, which they say is Nigel Farage. I'm not sure about you, but there's nothing more nationalistic and putting your country first, quite like letting the country your ambassador is meant to report on choose exactly who does it. Maybe this is the big Brexit party and leave.eu plan all along. No deal? Then let other countries choose the UK's ambassadors to them. Maybe then get them to send themselves exports too and just write UK on things they've made themselves and we can all just sit in our own filth and slowly rot away to the national anthem. Either way, May has said she has full faith in Darroch, so chances are he'll end up as Transport Secretary. Over in opposition town, Labour is still arguing about what their Brexit stance is, with your dad's grumpy friend from work and Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell saying that he wants the party to campaign for Remain and a second referendum, as does Shadow Home Secretary and only woman who could make the dictionary sound condescending, Diane Abbott. It was reported that McDonnell had called for Labour leader and King Julian from Madagascar stunt double Jeremy Corbyn to sack his core advisers as they were keeping him captive. No, silly, that's just how Jezza always looks, like he's walked off a plane after being held hostage for 30 years. It's his brand. McDonnell has denied this, though, and reports now suggest that unions have agreed that Labour's position would be that whatever deal is negotiated by a new Prime Minister should go to a second referendum versus Remain, and Labour would campaign for Remain. But if there's a general election, then Labour's manifesto would be to negotiate with the EU for a deal that works, then their stance would depend on what that deal was, whether or not they backed it or they backed Remain. Basically, Labour have announced that they'll stop fence-sitting in order to fence-surf once they've perused all possible fences and let the people decide which has the best stakes. Labour MP and leader of the gentleman in Buffy, Chris Williamson, had been suspended from the party after making comments about anti-Semitism, but then over a week ago had that suspension lifted by the NEC, including fan of industrial washing machine salesman Keith Vaz, who voted in favour of Williamson. Then Chris Williamson's suspension was reinstated after the NEC, including Keith Vaz, voted that actually lifting the suspension was a mistake. And it's that sort of decision-making that really shows how, if expenses-scamming, coke-taking, bullying Keith Vaz can stay a Labour MP and be on the NEC, the party's disciplinary procedures are really due a serious renewal. Saying that, perhaps the key is to keep suspending and reinstating Williamson like a sort of passive hokey-cokey method, whereby he'll eventually become so bored and leave Labour of his own accord, pleasing both those who want him gone and his supporters all at once. It's almost like they've got fence-sitting strategies for bloody everything, isn't it? Ugh, Labour. 
In other news, Clyde Kimry and the Greens will step aside in the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election on August the 1st in order to support the Lib Dems in a Remain alliance, which sounds a lot like a supergroup for people that like a certain lettuce. This is the election where disgraced Conservative MP and what if Sam from Lord of the Rings was evil, Chris Davis, when he lost his seat in a recall petition but is somehow running again because, let's face it, the last few years shows that voters really are often that stupid. This means it'll be Conservatives, Lib Dems, Labour and the Brexit Party running and if the Tories lose the seat, it would reduce the new Prime Minister's majority to just three. That's one set of bad sandwiches in the Westminster canteen away from government losses. Whether or not the Remain alliance will work or continue to be a thing after this election will be seen, but a Lib Dem win would mean whoever the new Lib Dem leader is will likely pose a genuine threat to number 10 in a general election. I mean, unless it's human post office Q Ed Davey, in which case they probably won't. In her last week's as Prime Minister, Theresa May is looking at whether the UK government's Wales office should be beefed up, which is silly, as it should definitely be lambed. She has also called for tougher rules against the construction of tiny houses, but Lego have not yet replied. The Bible of Parliamentary Procedure, Erskine May, is now free to read online, should any of you have absolutely nothing else to do with your life. This means it's available for anyone to look up Parliamentary Procedure, or like me, spend 20 minutes trying to see which rude words appear and where, and mostly being very disappointed. MPs have called the Jeremy Carl show fake and irresponsible, so that could be a supportive statement coming from them, but no one really knows. And lastly, far-right activist, ex-EDL leader and the human embodiment of a grubby thumb smudge on your work, Stephen Yaxi Lennon, a.k.a. Tommy Robinson, has been found guilty of contempt of court, though he said it's because of who he is, not what he's done. And that's sort of true in that who he is is a law-breaking twat. We'll find out this week if he'll get jail time, which if so will likely make his supporters angry, but only because it'll be a longer sentence than most of them could ever construct. And Labour MP for Vauxhall, ardent Brexiteer, Farage fan and Zelda from the Terrorhawks, Kate Howey, has said that she'll not stand in the next election, presumably to spend more time being that strange lady at the end of the street that all the children are scared of. Yeah, the podcast is back. Did you miss it? What do you mean you're upset that you didn't have a download to click delete from library on and now your thumb hasn't had an adequate workout? So rude. Well, I had a lovely holiday, thank you for asking, um, in so much that going on holiday with a toddler is basically just paying money so you've got somewhere else you have to exhaust yourself stopping them from smashing their faces in. Um, I've realised that the only real way to have a rest as a parent is if you're lucky enough to fall into a coma for maybe a week or two, if you're really jammy. Still, um, I caught some sunshine and now my hands have melted, uh, and I also saw a lot of cacti, fought one cockroach, drove on the right-hand side and didn't die, and pondered why all self-catering apartments all around the world always have knives so that if you tried to stab someone with them, they'd die of boredom first. Um, Also, one really teeny tiny pan, one giant could kind of serve the whole army with it pan, but never a reasonable sized pan, and there's always an oven that you need a code breaker to operate. It's funny how many times going on holiday just makes me miss home, but mainly only so I can slice a clove of garlic in less than four hours. But... Seriously, uh, we did have a very nice time and now I'm back and this is episode 150. How has that happened? That is a lot of waffle, isn't it? I mean, that's 150 hours plus all the extra silly bonus episodes which take it up to about 170. And basically, I appreciate you giving up just over one entire week of your life to this show if you've been here since the beginning. You could have done so much with that week other than listen to this shit. I mean, like you could have gone on holiday and tried not to get angry that every single vegetarian meal you had was just a variation on scrambled eggs. But instead... You've listened to my crap, so thank you. And also sorry, because some of those scrambled egg dishes were actually quite nice. 
Um, but there's this week's show, uh, and then there's going to be two more, and then there's going to be a break for the summer. But I need to know from you, the avid listener, what I should do with episode 152. As if it comes out on the 23rd of July, uh, the Tuesday that's meant to come out, that it would regularly come out according to our regular every Tuesday schedule, um, then the Conservative leader and new Prime Minister will be announced within hours, possibly minutes, and then the show will be out of date. So, uh, should I not give a shit? Do I mess up your weekly listening schedules and put it out on the 24th? Or should I just release a super small bonus edition straight afterwards? Um, let me know your thoughts, feelings and what you're having for dinner, unless it's scrambled eggs. Thank you to Colleen and Marius for your donations to uh, Kofi, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolebro, um, which the link is, as Marius suggested, now in the at parpolebro Twitter bio. Um, apparently it should have been there. And he was right, should have been. And it is now, so you can find it there. Um, it's also in all the pod blurb and all those sorts of things um, and if you too would like to buy me a coffee or drink for my pod efforts that I'll probably never have time to actually consume but can at least get some joy looking at it before it goes cold um, then please head to that ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro site um, and donate or you can of course also join the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpol bro um, if you can't do that then please give the show a nice review on any of the pod apps uh, what you use as that is free to do apart from the time that you'll never get back but hey you've already lost a week thanks to this podcast so what is a few more minutes um valuable is what it is that is very true um also just spreading the word about this show on your social medias pen pal circulars or cub scout corkboard is always appreciated and thanks tons to new listener scott for the lovely recommendation on twitter last week thank you scott that was hugely appreciated um so quick admin this week but firstly um please come to my camden fringe show please it's still on it's still happening uh, i think there's like six tickets sold now what's going on uh, it's on august the 4th 8 p.m august the 5th at 6 30 p.m at the Camden Comedy Club in the Camden near the Camden Tube um, and it will have all new jokes in and there's a ticket link either at camdenfringe.com or via the link on my website or in the podcast blurb just f- you'll find it it's easy to find um, please come please come along um, second bit of admin more important um, if you have children please get them to listen to the brand new Comedy Club for Kids podcast that I've started uh, it's called Comedy Club for Kids Presents Radio Nonsense um, you can of course find that on all podcast outlets same as this show but unlike this show uh, it is a family friendly podcast of myself and other comedy club for kids acts discussing topics as suggested by kids in a very family friendly way um speaking of which we really need some topics as suggested by kids so please ask your mini ones to listen to the trailer that i've put up and send some uh, ideas into the email address provided uh, it will contain absolutely zero politics or swearsies and it's instead all rather silly and nice and the first episode will be out uh, this coming friday and of course if your kids misbehave then just make them listen to this podcast instead and ruin their lives. Uh, on this week's show, I'm speaking to Katrina from Stopwatch, an organisation campaigning for accountable policing in the UK. And trust me, it's a really, really fascinating chat. Plus, there is a little look at the not very democratic leadership elections in the EU this week, which is still more democratic than Nigel Farage becoming leader of the Brexit party by owning a company and making people pay him to be part of it. I mean, basically, the rule is always the EU isn't at all perfect and is often shit, but Farage is a skipful unloaded onto your front lawn more shit. Um, I'm not sure if you're into your measurements and statistics, but picture a graph whereby your political utopia, whether that's, I don't know, Borgen or Aldous Huxley's Island, or if you're like me, Sesame Street, and then at the other end is Farage's face like a saggy crumble made from giblets. That's how it always works. Anyway, what I meant to say was, um, here's this. Fair policing uh, is not, as you might imagine, just someone going around making sure the waltzers don't go too fast and that the coconut shy is correctly affixed. It is, instead, what you probably thought it was, how the police should conduct their operations in a fair and accountable manner. 
As you can probably guess, this doesn't always happen, and particularly in the case of stops and searches, which are disproportionately used against young black men who often lose trust in the justice system as a result, often doesn't produce any results, and has been proven to not lead to any drop in crime at all. Which means that stop and search becomes less a crime prevention method and more a licence for police to get all handsy with who they choose to, but not in a fun uniform dating.com type way. Yet, despite Theresa May saying back when she was Home Secretary in 2014 that nobody wins when stop and search is misapplied and calling for effective and fair use of it, in recent months, due to the UK-wide increase in knife crime, everyone's calling to bring back the stop and search. Why? Well, I suppose it's like how a lot of people love Adele, because while she doesn't really do anything useful, they've heard her name a lot and it's quite easy to remember. But if stop and search isn't working, isn't accountable and isn't fair, but knife crime is rising, what else could be done? Does it need to be replaced with a start and conceal and hope reverse psychology works? Should it all be done on an Excel spreadsheet as that really helps accountants? Or maybe should more systems actually be in place to stop all of this being a huge waste of everyone's time? This week, I spoke to the brilliant Katrina French from Stopwatch UK, an independent organisation working to ensure fair and accountable policing across the country. As their website usefully says, they were formed in 2010, Stopwatch UK have campaigned against the disproportionate use of stop and search, the increasing use of exceptional stop and search powers and the weakening of accountability mechanisms. Where I grew up in North London, lots of my non-white mates were stopped and searched quite a lot for often trivial reasons because it was decided they looked a bit shifty while they crossed the road or they were dressed like a suspect they'd heard about. And having this chat with Katrina, it's pretty depressing to hear that little has changed despite proof that it doesn't really make a difference. I found talking to Katrina absolutely fascinating and I really think this is an important interview um, that you should listen to and then do check out Stopwatch UK after you do. Uh, I promise I didn't try to push my idea of start and conceal, which sounds like a makeup brand, doesn't it? Oh, new idea. Sorry. Um, oh, and... Uh excuses, excuses. Yeah, that jingle. Sorry. Look, I called Katrina on her landline phone, which means the sound quality is that of a landline phone. I've wrangled it through very special sound apps and everything, and I've played it to my wife, who said she could hear it all clearly. But I know some of you will be angry because it doesn't sound like we recorded on a golden mic phone into a diamond mini disc. Please refrain from writing in, and instead, I promise you should be able to hear it all fine. Here is Katrina. Hi, Katrina. Um, thanks for talking with me today. Uh, stop and search has increased by five times the amount in London um, from last year, from 2017-2018. And the anti-violence chief, uh, Lib Peck, says that it is working. Is it? Is she right? Um, afternoon, Finn. And I would say, actually, she's missed the mark on this. I had a look at the figures for May 2018 to May 2019 for the mayor, and there were just shy of 200,000 searches um, conducted. And from what I could work out from the dashboard, there were only 4,255 arrests for knives and bladed articles, which in my maths is about 2%. Um, so I would say it wasn't very effective in terms of finding knives and getting knives off the street. It is great that we managed to get 4,255 knives or weapons or bladed articles and were retrieved. However, my concern is about the people who were stopped and searched, didn't have anything on them, but were viewed with suspicion and probably left with a, I want to say negative impression of the police, but if the encounter wasn't positive, it would have diminished any confidence and trust that they had in the institution. That's quite a massive difference. If there's only 2% out of that many stops and searches, it does sort of, 
you know, if, if those were the numbers given to you straight up, if Libpec had said only 2% of this worked, you wouldn't have thought it was a particularly good policy. No, you wouldn't have. I looked and saw that we were aware of in terms of what the majority of stop and search is used for, and it's for drugs, low-level drug possession, usually um, cannabis. And I saw that over 30,000 stops out of that 198,000 had been conducted for, for, for cannabis, and that was like 60% of their stops. So once again, the narrative that's been given to the public is we're going to be tough on knife crime, um, guns and, you know, weapons. But actually, the reality is on the street, the the officers aren't stopping for those things in the numbers that they should be and actually aren't retrieving them. And I think it's it's even more telling that out of that 198,000, 144,000 were no further actions. So that means that that person didn't have anything on them. So 75% of the police stop and searches between May 2018 and May 2019 actually didn't result in anything. So if there's 144,000 people getting stopped and searched with no further action, it's basically just sort of, that sounds like they're just being harassed, really. Your word's not mine, but I'll agree with them. I'm not trying to be kind of flippant about the, the topic at hand, but I think people need to understand that Stop and search doesn't necessarily just take five minutes, and if you don't have anything high, then you shouldn't worry about it. You're viewed with suspicion, um, you're then having to engage with, with an officer, even though you've not committed any offence, to reassure that officer that you're not a suspect. Depending on the professionalism of the officer, um, and I suppose your conduct too, this situation could escalate, because I also saw that in the same period, there were 709 public order offences, um, and those often are that a person is arrested for assault of a police officer or obstruction of a police officer because the stop and search encounter has escalated. And rather than focusing on finding something, it's now become about the person's um, behaviour towards officers. And obviously no one condones officers being threatened or abused. But I think for some of the people being stopped, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back and they respond because they feel alienated, they feel targeted, and they're sick to death of being stopped. So it just goes from zero to 100 sometimes very quickly, and you're arrested even though you may not have been carrying a prohibited article. So, But for an officer stopping you that day, you'd have been you know, quite fine and not have ended up in the cells or potentially with a criminal record. And I think we do need to look at those numbers whilst they're very small, but highlight that that 709 people, and I'm not sure if they did have anything on them because the dashboard doesn't allow us to see that, but when you're engaging with the police, nobody wants to be arrested, and it shouldn't be that you're a law-abiding citizen going about your daily business, you're stopped and searched, and it goes a bit pee-tong, and next thing you know, you're you're facing a a potential charge for obstruction or public order offence. And that's, I mean, it brings me to the next question, really, which is how much accountability is there on the police for how they conduct stops and searches? Are, are stops and searches regularly monitored for, you know, if, if some people are getting riled up and it's leading to public order offences, is there not an overall monitoring of how these things should be done? Well, I think when Theresa May, Saul Hutchins, was the home, home secretary, in relation to stop and search, she actually introduced what was called the Best Use of Stop and Search Scheme, um, in 2014 and whilst it was not a mandatory scheme it was a voluntary scheme in the last few years we actually have seen um, stop and search become much more effective and I say effective in terms of officers in the grounds and how they write their grounds it's improved um, the hit rate of finding items has improved because officers are having instead of I suppose to just view people's suspicions they watch your behavior 
and decide whether they're going to conduct a stop on how they see you behave as opposed to, I suppose, pre predispositions or preconceptions of who should be committing crimes. So we've actually seen, whilst the ethnic disparity has increased, we've seen effectiveness in terms of police officers finding staff um, increase too. So when you speak about accountability, I think what we miss is that people don't complain when they have had a bad experience. And I think that's partly because they don't trust the system. Um, it's not... Can you imagine complaining to um, about your food in a restaurant and then kind of having to go back to that restaurant constant, constantly? Um, I think most people just wouldn't go back at all. Whereas with the police, you kind of don't have an option not to go back. It's the police. So quite a few people that we've spoken to said they wouldn't complain because they don't want reprisals from the police and also they just want to let it go. So in terms of public scrutiny, complaints aren't aren't very high. The Mets say take that as an indication that they're doing things well. I say that's laughable, although I won't laugh now. Um, and on top of that, the public scrutiny mechanisms such as the stop and search community monitoring groups in London, so every London borough has a stop and search scrutiny group, and um, they're not reflective of the people who are being stopped and searched. Now, I know this because I chaired the Islington stop and search group for three years and I was also the chair for the Mayor's Office of Policing and Crime, the scrutiny Pan London Scrutiny Group, which is all thirty two London boroughs. And in those meetings, um what I found was most of the chairs actually were much more inclined to be mouthpieces for the police as opposed to challenging what the police were saying and giving a community um, perspective. They were just coming back and saying the police said this and that was taken as being gospel. So in regards to like public or community scrutiny, not very much. Officers, however, should be supervised when they conduct a stop and search. So that means not on the at the time, but once they've written up their stop slip or their grounds, that someone more senior will look at that and make sure that it, it all reads right and that it sounds like it was legitimate a legitimate stop. What we found recently is I don't know if it's due to police carts or resources, it's not much supervision is happening. So officers are doing lots of stops, but they're not being, the stops aren't being supervised, which means if you, you know, you're not doing it very well, you're not going to be, not even reprimanded, but you're not going to be um, taken aside and said, actually, I, I think there's some issues here because of, you can see you're know, stopping on flimsy ground. So internally, it doesn't feel like there's very much oversight on stop and search and um, her majesty's inspectorate of constabularies and fire and rescue service hmic frs excuse me i'm dyslexic so i always get my letters mixed up but hmic um still do their annual inspections where stop and search is annually inspected as part of their um, visits to police forces they did let us know that as of this year they won't be inspecting stop and search in all forces which is very disappointing because we feel the inspectorate take their eye off the ball. It gives a green light for forces not to take stop and search seriously. So we have been challenging HMIC to carry out stop and search thematic investigations for all police forces, inspections rather, but they have said they they don't think that that's an effective way to do things and they're going to be piloting this new way, which from our perspective, is, is very disappointing because if the inspectorate doesn't take it seriously or feels that there's no need to inspect all of the police forces, we're fearful that the police forces will see this as a 
kind of laissez-faire. I can take my eye off the ball and no one's looking at Stockholm Birch anymore. Sure. I mean, it would, was because um, I read on your website about body cameras as well, and that's something, isn't that increasing in the police force? Would that not make a big difference if every police officer wore a body camera? Okay, so yeah, body-worn, um, body-worn cameras it, it has been introduced now. I believe it's across the whole country, but I know in some places um, officers still aren't using them. It should be a game-changer. However, I don't think the public are fully aware of how body-worn camera, I say video because I watched the video, but it's actually the body-worn camera, the device, um, should be being used. So in a stop and search encounter, police officers should, before they start the encounter, say to you, um, my body-worn camera is on, and this footage is held for 31 days. If you would like a copy of it, you need to come to a police station and request it. Um, so they're not telling people when they're stopped any of that information. So if you are stopped and it's past the 31-day mark, there's a high probability that that footage isn't available. Now, whilst there may still be a record of the stoppers in the grounds that the officer has given, I think you and I both would agree that it would be more, it would be much more, what's the word, telling or transparent to watch the actual encounter and not rely on somebody's written record of what happened. And um, yeah, and then unfortunately that's, not happening. So I asked HMIC whether they looked at body-worn video um, as part of their inspections of stop and search, and they said they don't. So I was like, we've had body-worn video for a couple of years now. It was meant to be a reassuring tool for the public, you know, training, in a sense, not a training tool, but a tool that could definitely be used for continuous improvement for officers to learn, you know, look at your behavior in that incident, how would you learn next time, you know, what not to do, what to do. And to hear that it's not being used in terms of stop and search um, inspections, I'm really disappointed and also alarmed because what what officers using it for then if no one's ever going to review it? Yeah, it does seem like a, a massive waste of all that equipment if uh, if they're not using them whatsoever. That's really ridiculous. Um, but I, I wanted think, to ask you about... Oh, before, I go, before I go on to him, just in terms of it's, it's used mainly, if I understand, or the kind of cell was around domestic violence, domestic abuse and go into a home where somebody had been abused and being able to capture that. And in case the victim did not want to press charges, they would have gathered enough evidence with that. And I can understand, you know, how it's got its use in that situation. However, in a stop and search, I can't understand why it's not being used as a reflective tool for officers to look at their conduct and understand how they could have done well, or also a best practice tool to identify officers who are doing good stop and searches, lawful stop and searches, and then sharing it with their colleagues to learn from that encounter. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was just going to say in that it also works for the police very much in that if they can show that the encounter was to procedure and correct and then there was still a say a public order that you know instant that happened afterwards then they can sort of defend themselves i i don't see why you would lose out on using it really neither, neither do i so let's let's hope that as the months go by that they will increase its use but also that the public will call on that footage to support whatever complaint they make or um yeah, com- yeah complaint they make to the police because I think at the moment, not enough of the public understand how body-worn video slash footage um, camera works in relation to stop and search encounters and accountability. Do you think, and, and I want to, I very much want to ask you about the, the people who are being such and such and, and the support they get, but before I do, I just, do you think that, obviously, the police are having massive cuts at the moment? Do you think there's just a sort of lack of 
money towards training properly and, and towards using this equipment properly. Are you seeing any of that in, in, in your dealings with, with how the police operate with these things? Well, I don't think it is in terms of the the issues around stop and search, so the racial disparities that have existed basically since the, the, the use of the power came, you know, you know, the power was enacted. I don't think we can put those down to police cuts. Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I can't do that. I think the issues that we see around stop and search are systemic, institutional, as well as obviously individual bias in some cases, but I don't think it's to do with police resources. Sure. Sure. I, I, I just I just wanted to ask. Um, and I, I and I mean, down to the people that, that are being stopped, you said it's disproportionately uh, young black men, isn't it, that are being uh, stopped? And I mean, how much support legal or otherwise can people get who've been stopped and searched? You know, and, and is there kind of uh, support for, you know, I, I know that I know that you're providing lots of services at Stopwatch, but. What, where can you seek help other than, as you said before, going to the police to complain, which which doesn't seem like a very effective measure? Then, is there anything else that people can do? Well, people can complain. They can. You don't have to go to the police station. Complain. Complain online or by the telephone. Um, you can, if you feel you've been abused or mistreated, contact Stopwatch. We are. We're, we don't have legal representations ourselves I should rephrase that yeah we don't have in-house lawyers however we have our legal group which is a range of barristers and solicitors who signed up to support Stopwatch should they get clients who need legal representation so if you came to Stopwatch and you've been stopped I would take your details and I'd pass those on to our legal group and one of those fantastic barristers solicitors would be in touch to say would you like some assistance so that's how we work we don't make any money out of referrals we're volunteer-led um, non-for-profit organization but one of the things we wanted to do was try and take some of the burden and stress out from ident- identifying a good solicitor because when you've been stopped and you're in this kind of frantic mode of potentially also with a charge of obstruction or something like this. The last thing you want to do is go through the yellow pages. Well, I suppose that shows my age. Or just go on Google and try and find <laughs> um, try and find somebody. So the idea is that you come to Stopwatch, that you'll be supported with pastoral support in terms of listening to you, what your encounter was, and then more pragmatic support around what would you like to do about that? What's the resolution? Is it about a formal complaint? Is it about potentially a civil claim against the police if you were injured in a stop and search? All of these things. So it really depends on the encounter as to what sort of support is offered. One of the things that Stopwatch is in the process of developing is a a new service, which will be for um, young adults and children around rights and well-being, because one of the things we looked at historically, we have been fantastic at doing outreach sessions around knowing your rights and engaging with the police. We have an app called Y-Stop, which is fantastic. Um, so it encouraged young people to hold the police to account. But what we found actually was the mental trauma of being stopped and searching it going very wrong. Um, so I just want to throw in here that this is often children, people under the age of 18, being stopped by police officers, often grown men, who have batons, pepper spray, CSCS gas, batons, tasers, um, quite a lot of uniforms. And they're often then engaging with police officers who, much stronger than themselves, may in some way harm them or cause injury. And it may not even be a physical injury, but in their mind they feel that they have been violated by a professional 
and somebody who's meant to protect and serve them and not abuse them. And young people often, it, it, it troubles them. They say that they feel it was a traumatic experience. So listen into how they've had to protest what's gone on has led us to say we need to do something much more holistic. So we're developing at the moment a, a well-being side of our of the know your right stuff that will involve, I don't know, counsellors or psychotherapists to do some group work with people that come to us and say, actually, I, it was quite traumatic for me and get them to work through whatever that trauma was. And that's quite pioneering for us because we've been very pragmatic with right stuff, but I think we need to step out of, not step out of it, but embrace the holistic approach of understanding what the encounter has meant on someone's psychological well-being yeah because that's got to cause distrust i mean it happened to some of my mates at school i went to school in north london and uh some of my mates were, were stopped and uh had a, a quite a nasty encounter with some police that stopped to search them and they they were never able to trust the police ever again you know they've never they've never been able to since and uh you know that 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 can't be that can't be very helpful for anyone if that kind of distrust breeds from that exactly and i think that distrust so the distrust then breeds discontent but also it means that if you are a victim of a crime you may not want to tell the police so because well why would I tell the police or they're not going to believe me and I think that also goes back to if we look at when Stephen Lawrence was murdered and how the police treated Dwayne Brooks at the scene and thought that he may have been a suspect in potentially the murder is that people are like well why would I go to the people who don't trust me anyway so the first thing is you wouldn't go and get help um, and the second thing is if you knew maybe somebody who's committed a crime or had information about a crime you wouldn't want to share it because you don't have any trust in the system so this the, the negative search, stop and search encounter has ripple effects that go much beyond the actual encounter in that individual has a real impact on society how people feel um in society whether they're you know valued whether they're seen as upstanding citizens and then whether they want to you know engage with with the state and I, I think you're quite right in highlighting some of those lived experiences of friends you know which is people never regain the trust or never yeah the police never regain the trust of the community and I think that's why we're in this kind of where we are around some of the nice and serious or well, say nice crime but serious youth violence is many of these young people will have negative perceptions of the police and it's because of their lived experience around the police so when they may be involved in small altercations, they won't call the police for help. Um, and this means, ultimately, there's either going to be vigilantism or victimism. you're going to be victimised, um, kind of take your pick, and neither of which Stopwatch condones, but I think there's an understanding as to how the situation and why the situation the way it is, and it's not kind of condoning it or justifying it, but I think given some context to why people wouldn't just call the police if they saw someone with a knife. Although we did have a young man um, uh, who's on the gangs matrix, which is um, a police database, and he had um, stopped carrying a knife. He had been caught with a knife at about, I think, 14, 13. He stopped carrying a knife after being caught with one. And then about three years later, another young man came to his estate, and that young man came with a knife to harm him. He called the police, right thing to do. The police came to the estate. It just so happens they both must have been in like a grey tracksuit, so the police stopped him and said, we've had a call that there's someone, you know, with a knife. So he understood that he called the police. It was really funny. He'd called the police. But he was trying to say to the police, I called you, like, it's not me. The guy's over there. 
But then a big crowd came around the police stopping him and he ended up getting arrested for wasting police time. Oh, no, that's awful. That's really awful. Um, and I, that's really bad, but I share that story because he used to carry a knife. He stopped carrying a knife. He now calls the service that's meant to protect him. They come along, and fair enough, he was in the same clothes as the other person, but there was, he said they didn't seem to understand or want to care to understand why he had called them. And when he was trying to mouth to them, because this crowd came around, so he couldn't say that's the guy with the knife because he didn't want to be seen to be a snitch. So when they said we're arresting you, he just said okay and went off to the police station and was arrested. Oh, that's really depressing. That's so depressing. I mean... Sorry no, 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 don't be sorry. It's, it's a real, you know, it's a real thing that happened. It's, it's important that, that people hear those stories. I mean, it, it's sort of interesting, though, that, that you know, because um, I wanted to ask you about if there are kind of alternatives to stop and search, but it, it's it's more than just an alternative stop and search, isn't it? It's, it's the overall attitude that means that, you know, dispro- disproportionately young black men are not being trusted by the police and there's a, you know, and being targeted by them. There's, it's a whole sort of systematic change that, that's needed, I assume. Yes, it is. So our recent report, the Colour of Injustice, Race, Drugs and Law Enforcement, which was um, a joint report with LSE, Sun School of Economics and Release, um, main author was Dr. Michael Shiner, highlighted exactly this thing about stop and search, not being the kind of individual officers having bias, but there is something more systemic in the system. So one of the things the report highlighted was that you're more likely to be stopped and searched if you're black and in a social, economic, like, deprived area. And this is because black people um, and people from ethnic backgrounds tend to live in more deprived areas. Um, So you're more likely to be stopped there, not because you're black necessarily, but because you're in this area where it's more deprived. And policing is proactive. So police officers are often coming to your estate or to your area because there's a lot of trouble. So you're more likely to be engaging with the police just by default of your geography and, you know, kind of the environment you're born into. What surprising we found, though, was that rates of disproportionality were high in affluent areas such as Kensington and Chelsea. And one of the reasons, I suppose, we put forward was that you're not meant to be in those areas if you're black or brown, essentially, because affluence is not congruent with um, being black or brown. So when you are spotted in those places, police officers think, what are you doing here? And view you with suspicion. So... um, it's as though, you know, your blackness, whether you're in a poor area or a white area it, or an affluent area, doesn't really matter because your blackness is, is going to stand out. And at the moment, in, our, in the report, it was you were eight to nine times more likely to be stopped and searched if you're um, black male. And I say male because we see you know, boys as, as young as eight being stopped and searched, um, black boys. Um, I don't really see white boys of eight years old being stopped and searched um, in the data that I received. So there's definitely a dis- disparity, but also in terms of the age, it's as though young black boys can't be innocent and have always got to be up to no good. Um, and it's really a negative perception, I think, the police have of them, but not just the police. I'll be clear, the police are just people from society who do a job. So I think we need to also zoom out and understand um, whilst we focus on policing, there's a wider conversation for society to have about race, institutional racism, um, how services are used, how services are designed. Um, we just had recently, you know, the Victoria Leadership Contest, which 
minus two, I believe, um, two of the candidates admitted to drug use. My, two didn't, and the rest did. If I asked them whether they'd been stopped and searched, I'd probably be laughed at. Um, do you see what I mean in terms of the the, the, the double standard, the, the injustice, the unfairness? And then people will say, oh, but you've got, not me, but people have got a chip on their shoulder. They haven't got a chip on their shoulder. They just see the differential treatment and it's paining um, to, to live that day in and day out. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's hugely double standards that they can get away with saying they've taken drugs and have absolutely no consequences whatsoever when it can entirely damage someone else's life and, and career. And, uh, you know, was, I think that was sort of... But not, oh, sorry, come But not even just taking them, calling for more, stop and search. That's the bit that I'm you taking the drugs, fine, but now you're actually calling for more stop and search and you know that you won't be impacted at all by this police in power and that the police in power is going to impact, you know, usually black and brown men and I have to say gypsy traveller people as well are, are impacted by stop and search, mainly vehicle stops a lot, but they're another um, ethnic minority community that are demonised or persecuted with this policing power. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And we'll be back with Katrina in a minute, but first... How democratic do you like your EU? Full fat democratic? Semi-skin, but at least I don't have to make too much effort and I don't need to learn another language or anything, do I? Democratic? Completely authoritarian? They have an army and their own flag and oh God, what if we all become enslaved to the EU? Well, they'll make us all... Hang on. Have clean beaches and easy airport queues. Ugh, sounds awful. One of the not very big fun debates of the last few years has been on the issue of how democratic the EU actually is. Brexiteers would like you to know that it's unelected and undemocratic, that the various president positions aren't chosen by voters, and laws are dictated to countries rather than with their input. Remainers would probably retort that actually MEPs are elected by voters and they then vote, or in the case of the Brexit party and formerly UKIP, won't actually turn up and therefore remove that democratic right from British people, and they also elect the leaders. 
then they'd usually point out that the monarchy isn't elected. We don't get to directly elect our prime minister in the UK anyway. And first past the post is actually all quite unfair. And then we all realise that the best argument against the point of view is to point out that, hey, UK democracy is also shit. And so we're all losers in this fun game of rights. But at least we're not in North Korea or something like that. The recent EU leadership elections have proved that actually everyone is a little bit right about their views on EU democracy. There are four positions up for grabs at the moment: Centre forward, defence, missionary and upside down. No, sorry, wrong bit of paper. They are President of the European Council, which has already been decided and given to David Sassoli. That was decided by the EU Council and not MEPs. But before you go crying about how that's not democratic and shouting, EU, E them more like, or something, then you should note that the EU Council is made up of the leaders of each member state who you likely voted for, or at least for their party, or in my case, uh, haven't. But you've heard about people who have done, even though they won't admit it. A lot like people who buy James Blunt albums. Then there is the president of the European Central Bank, which looks like it's going to Christine Lagarde, and that's also decided by the council, but they consult MEPs and the bank, and if they all say no, then they probably have to find someone else or just put an out-to-lunch sign on the door till the next round of elections. So that's probably the least democratic, but still, all in all, fairly democratic when you break it down. And listen, who actually wants to go through president of the European Central Bank nominees when most people can't be bothered to vote for their local MP, let alone police and crime commissioner? Then there's the High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs. Basically, they all do the foreign and security stuff, and that looks like it's going to Spanish politician Joseph Borrell. But MEPs have to vote their approval on him for Borrell to do the job. And then there's the big one, President of the European Commission, in charge of the executive EU body that proposes laws and policies, who has to receive approval of more than 50% of the MEPs to get through. The nominee for that is Ursula von der Leyen. So MEPs, elected by the voters, vote for two of the four major roles. They have a say in the third, and the fourth is decided by the leaders of countries who voters voted them in. All that sounds fairly decent, right? Sounds like we're all getting a fair slice of say in that election pie, right? Right. Except, this time round, the issue is in the nominations. In 2014, the last round of EU elections, senior MEPs worked out a system called Spitzenkandidat, which is German for when you mix saliva and sweets together and down it like a shot. No, wait, uh, sorry. It means lead candidate. And the idea was that various alliances within the EU, made up of various national parties based on their ideologies, would all nominate a lead candidate each. The European Council would then choose a winner from all the nominees, who in turn would then have to be voted on by MEPs in order to succeed. It's like a two-factor authentication, but better because MEPs don't have to quickly find a six-digit code on their phone and enter it within 60 seconds in order to vote for the EU Commission President. Most of the EU Council, i.e. government leaders from the member states, didn't like the sound of this because it gave more power to MEPs from the beginning, and they argued that as leaders of their various states, they've been elected by their voters and have even more of a democratic right to not really bother with the first bit. Nothing like people who've already been democratically elected to decide when there's been enough democracy for everyone else. Anyway, it worked in 2014, leading to everyone's favourite mouse turned into a human by magic, Jean-Claude Juncker from Luxembourg, becoming commission president. But this time, it hasn't really happened. There were arguments that it should happen like last time, but others said that any Spitzen candidate that could get most votes from MEPs could be president. That would mean different parties could all back the same person. But it all became a bit vague, and Juncker himself said it wasn't very transparent, which is a really nice way of saying that it's like trying to see through concrete. 
A lot of complicated things then happened, including the Europe's Liberals, led by Witherdell and John, Guy Verhofstadt, ending up putting a Spitzen team forward, which no one really liked and didn't really count. The European People's Party picked a candidate, Manfred Weber, who had had no senior executive public office experience and didn't speak French, which the French would never, ever go for. Macron didn't, and then he said instead that he'd back Small Egg and current Commission Vice President Franz Timmermans, a man who Nigel Farage tweeted begging Theresa May not to back because it turns out that despite him being elected to a parliament he says is unelected and undemocratic and doesn't want to be part of, Farage still also wants to say in who the president of that is. Cake and eating all of it till they stick it up and then have it and eat it again. Then Hungary said they wouldn't back either of those two candidates, Weber or Timmermans, and Ireland, Bulgaria, Croatia and others could have just backed those two and had them nominated, but said they wouldn't give up the EU presidency without a fight, and after loads of kerfuffle it was clear neither Weber nor Timmermans would gain an MEP majority vote, and so they all went fuck it and nominated Ursula von der Leyen instead, who absolutely no one wanted. She's the Theresa May's Brexit deal of candidates, basically. Von der Leyen isn't very popular in Germany, where she's defence minister and is currently embroiled in a financial scandal. And she might not be all that popular with MEPs, considering that absolutely none of them picked her, in which case the European Council will have a month to find someone else. Democratic? Possibly. It's a bit hard to tell who's actually made the decisions here. Then you have that Christine Lagarde was pretty condescending to Greece during their debt crisis and was found guilty of negligence over misuse of public funds. Borrell is very opposed to Catalan independence, which won't help all the current protests much. All candidates are from Western Europe, meaning that Central and Eastern Europeans feel like they're barely being represented at all. And President of the European Parliament, David Sassoli, who was voted for properly, has already said that the EU Council have ignored political groups' wishes and thinks there should be an intergovernmental conference to sort it all out. So, is the EU democratic-ish? Sort of, mostly. I mean, sort of, mostly. Can we really talk when 160,000 bigots are about to tell us which of two completely laughable sociopaths is their favourite to lead the country? No, no, we can't. I mean, at least with authoritarianism, you get all that time back that you'd normally spend trying to care and can instead use it to, uh, I don't know, work on your parade technique, I guess. And now, back to Katrina. And do you think, I mean, as you pointed out, it's kind of uh, endemic in our political system. I mean, we saw that with the Windrush scandal, that there were people who are British citizens being told that they're not anymore because they're not white. And, and that's sort of been decided by the government, you know. And um, I, I mean, you mentioned earlier there have been recent changes to the guidance around stop and search. Have you got any hope that there's change in the system? Have you seen anything where any of the, the guidance around stop and search powers, are, you know, hopeful? Oh no, they're 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 alarming. Very disappointed with the Home Secretary's approach. Um, we know that stop and search is not an effective, um, I don't say tool, an effective power because power can be misused and abused. When you say tool, it really downplays the, the impact that you know your actions can have. So when he said, when Sajid said that he would be relaxing the Section 60 authorization. Um, which is in April, and section, for your listeners, Section 60 is when the police believe that um, imminent violence may occur. And um, as they believe it's going to occur, they're going to put a blanket stop and search in for a whole area. And that means that they don't need reasonable suspicion to stop you. So anybody, let's just give the example of Westminster, in the Westminster area can be stopped and searched if there's a Section 60 in place, even if they have not demonstrated or been observed doing anything wrong. And we think that actually this is really alarming because it doesn't require an officer to use individual grounds. And it means that it's very arbitrary in terms of who's being stopped. You stop anyone and it's mainly young black males being stopped and the argument the police give, which is 
foolishness is young black males are doing the crime, so we need to stop young black males. Um, the Met Police already said in a brief last month that ethnicity, there was no correlation to ethnicity and knife crime, yet young black males are still being stopped in vast numbers compared to their white counterparts and Asian counterparts too. So having a look at how Section 60 is being used, we're concerned that it's going to be a dragnet effect where anybody who the police don't like the look of or think look a bit dodgy or suspicious are going to be caught up and searched. And people say, oh, that doesn't matter. Well, it does matter because if you haven't done anything wrong, you've not been observed doing anything wrong or the police don't have any intelligence that you've done anything wrong, why should you be subject to intrusion from the state? Um, and if they're looking for weapons and guns and say, you know, you're on your way to your mate's house and you've got a little bit of weed in your pocket, you now are going to be pulled into the criminal justice system, not because you're a violent offender, but because you've got weed. And it's not that now we're here condoning cannabis use or drug use, but it's highlighting that the unintended consequences of things, which is you stopped me because you thought I had a knife. Now I have a small amount of drugs. Yes, it's illegal, but I'm getting pulled into the criminal justice system when white people who may have much stronger drugs on them are not being stopped in that Section 60 because there's a perception they're not the people carrying weapons although they may be carrying other prohibited articles. So they're just able to kind of go freely and move around freely without any of that suspicion. And it's, it's damaging. Also, it will increase um, the ethnic disparities because of personal bias and how the power is being used. So the Home Secretary, this is not an evidence-based move. It's not, you know, seeking research because we had the College of Police and the Home Office both publish reports in... I believe 2016 and 2017, saying that stop and search is not effective at all for knife crime and does not reduce, you know, violence. So if that's coming from those statutory bodies or you know, you know policy making bodies, it, it's flabbergasting that the Home Secretary is not listening. Yeah, it's complete. That's completely bonkers. It's it, there's you know fact based evidence and, and and stats from these, as you said, statutory bodies that, that say otherwise, and yet it's still being used. I mean, so I suppose the, the question is, and, and and obviously it's not, you know, I should say to this, stop watches about fair policing and accountability. It's not necessarily about we're not asking you to come up with the inventions of what else to do, but what would be. What is a viable? What's a viable alternative to stop and search? What would be? You know, are there any other policies or procedures out there that are proved more effective or at least more fair? You know, what what should we be looking at? I think what we have to look at is is stop and search for you know kind of crime prevention, public protection, or the use of social control. And I would I would argue the the latter that it's more about um, social control. That said. But which is an organisation that understands that if the police got a phone call saying someone with, you know, yellow jumper and red shoes has got a bomb in their pocket, you would want to, you know, stop that person um, before before they detonated their bomb and, you know, carry out a search. So we understand the kind of pragmatic need for stop and search. One of the things we're really concerned about is that it seems in the last 35 years it's never been used in a pragmatic, fair, equitable um, way. And if it can't be demonstrated to have been used in that sort of manner, then why do we keep doing it? So whilst we're not you know, calling for it to be abolished and scrapped, we are highlighting and challenging that how it's being used is incredibly damaging for police legitimacy. And that's what we need to kind of get politicians and policymakers to focus on. 
especially as I've said to you, the efficacy of the power that, you know, out of those 200,000 searches, there was only 4,255 arrests for um, bladed articles. That's not effective, um, but the media won't say those things. And I think, so the kind of long answer is, is, well, what other tools are there? What the police should be doing is be present in communities. And being present means walking around, being seen, I don't necessarily mean even talking to people because people who have had negative encounters with the police don't want to necessarily talk to them. But having a police officer just walking up and down in your local area probably will instill for many people a confidence that there's a police presence. The police don't need to search you to make their presence known if you kind of follow my drift. It's very intrusive, very contentious. So I think there needs to be more community policing, which is more police being present for people to know who their local officer is and have conversations. Not that it always has to be adversarial and you're going to carry out a search and it's going to be confrontational because I believe you've got something and I'm going to search you to you know, alleviate that belief. Um, so it's not very complicated at all, which is officers need to understand the harm that they do when stop and search is done wrong and also not just the encounter but why you stop that person in the first place um, and if those things aren't going to be addressed I don't believe training can address them I think it's much more intrinsic to the kind of fiber of the institution of the police and I, I will add on here it's not just the police though in terms of like ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system the CPS play a role you know in terms of charging people for like low level um, to offences, you'll be surprised to know that the more people convicted of cannabis, black people convicted of cannabis possession, then class supply of class A and B drugs combined, I believe, in 2016. So the perception is that that's crazy. And then in the, the, the opposite is that in the same kind of period, arrests for white people have halved, um, but arrests for black people have remained consistent, even though we've seen, a, I believe, a 78% reduction in the use of stop and search from like 2011, 2016. So whilst the numbers are going down, um, they've gone down much sharper for white people. White people are not getting arrested as much as they used to by a stop and search, and the ethnic disparities have continued to increase. So there's definitely an issue with this, and we need to get our hands around it. It's, I know for many people, oh, it's that old chestnut, stop and search, you know, just get on with it, or if people don't have anything to hide. But I think people really need to zoom out and understand what it is to be viewed with suspicion and not feel like society accepts you as being a law-abiding citizen just because you're in a hoodie or you speak slang or you're black. It, it, it feels very alienating. I think listeners need to just kind of understand some of the more nuance, nuance, some of the nuances around the issue and not the... I don't even say... I'm not even going to say right-wing media because I don't necessarily think Labour have been great on this issue. Either David Lammy fantastic, Diane Abbott, fantastic, some other leading um, Labour MPs like Kate Osmo, fantastic, Marsha Dakova, fantastic in terms of calling out um, what they see as ineffective policing 20 years on after them at first an inquiry. But overall, most people are just do more, do more. And I think it's lazy policing. It doesn't get to the heart of the problem and actually causes more tensions within not community, society. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, and, and it's interesting as well that you say earlier that it, it's about police, uh, you know, in, in policing about 
being part of the community, understanding your neighbourhood and not just sort of othering and uh, treating people as a group. You know, it's, it's sort of ah, it's ridiculous when you say how simple it could be <laughs> to sort of make it more effective. Um, I wanted to uh, uh, well, ask you in a question a minute, which is one that I ask all the guests just to sort of finish off. But before I do that, um, Stopwatch UK is, is a UK wide uh, organisation, right? I mean, because obviously we've been discussing London quite a lot, but I'm guessing this is a problem all over the country. Yep, it is. We are UK-wide. We look at all of the, four, the well, 42, 43, if you the City of London Police Forces. I just want to say to your listeners, you'd be really surprised to know that the City of London Police, which obviously just kind of covers the City of London, um, they have, like, one of the lowest number of drug stops ever. Um, so I think we should be petitioning the City of Police to do more drug stops or more stop and search. Maybe around banks on a Friday <laughs> afternoon. Um, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Maybe just to, you know, balance out some of that ethnic disparity. Because I don't think there's a lot of black bankers working in there. Not in the numbers, but there are white bankers in the city. So maybe then if we did some drug stops on a Friday, we could even out the numbers. Um, I'm, only, I'm being very flippant <laughs> with that. Yeah, but that's, I think, I think we should, that's definitely something we should at least start a petition on. I'm very keen to do that. Definitely around Liverpool Street Station and Bank, definitely. That's a, it's a really good call. Yeah, or just outside Parliament. Where's Boris's office? Where's Joe's <laughs> office? Every time they're going in and out, let's just give you a shake down. But yeah, we do operate across the country. Um, we'll be off in Wales. We've been invited by um, a member of the Welsh Assembly to come and put on an event in Wales in the autumn. Um, I was up in Manchester in April, speaking to a community group, so Kids of Colour there, they had an event and they were speaking about their interactions as um, yeah, black and Asian kids with the police. Um, I've also visited Liverpool and uh, was in the Toxic area talking to community groups about their perception of stop and search. Um, so yeah, we, we're national, we, although based in London, we want to hear about anybody's stop and search encounter that's happened in England and Wales and support people um, whilst we focus, not we focus, whilst the focus is often on black males, stop and search affects everybody. So it, I don't care if you're black, blue, pink or whatever, if you've had a negative experience with the police around a stop and search encounter, we're here to support That's you. brilliant, brilliant. Um, and yeah, just the last question that I ask all our guests on this, um, apart from Stopwatch, uh, what other kind of campaigns, writers, organisations uh, would you recommend that listeners check out on the subject of fair and accountable policing? Like, Who do you go to for information? Okay, so um, other than ourselves, there's a fantastic organisation called Jengba. They're around joint enterprise, not by, not guilty by association. I think it's really important to, to note them. Often young people have been caught up in crime or, uh, let's just say, murder, weren't necessarily at the scene or were at the scene and didn't do anything to participate in the murder, but now have been convicted. So um, we... we we, we support their campaign joint enterprise and it's important because of the gangs matrix work that we did um, or we do rather netpol the network for police monitoring they are fantastic in terms of like calling out police behavior and tracking what's going on across the country we also work with big rubber watch and whilst not just on policing they look at um yeah surveillance and how yeah surveillance is impacting on society as a whole but they've done some fantastic stuff around um, facial recognition and we're concerned about how facial recognition technology will be used in body-worn videos and body-worn cameras going forward. Because at the moment, you don't need to give your name and your details if you're stopped and searched, um, like your name, address, that you don't need to give any of that information. You can still get a slip to 
justify or explain why you've been stopped. But if you have body-worn video, the truth is, is you won't, and that has facial recognition, it won't matter what my name is because you'll have a picture of my face. So um, that's kind of emerging technology. And then the good old Liberty, um, I work with Gracie May to develop some work around uh, vehicle stops because vehicle stops were mentioned in the Stephen Lawrence inquiry as um, an area that should be being recorded. And it's unfortunate that 20 years on, we still do not record vehicle stops. Um, West Midlands Police recently did a small pilot um, on recording vehicle stops. But at the moment, there's no national, yeah, there's no kind of national proposal to do that, which is obviously very disappointing. So, yeah, we work with Liberty. So Liberty, Big Brother Watch, Netpol, um, and Jenga are great organisations to do with policing or surveillance or just kind of human rights and civil liberties in general. Thanks to Katrina for having time to chat. Uh, you can find Stopwatch UK at stop-watch.org or on Twitter at Stopwatch UK or on Facebook at exactly the same. Um, Katrina is also on Twitter at uh, French, that's double F French, uh, Katrina um, with a K. All the other groups and links she mentions will be up at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk soon. Thanks to Sophie for putting me in touch with Katrina. And while there will only be potentially two more episodes of the podcast before the summer break, I will still need guests for when it returns in the autumn. Thank you so much for all the brilliant suggestions you've sent in recently. And I'm chasing them all up uh, just in email, not in sort of physically. I'm not that healthy. Um, but if you haven't got in touch and there you have someone that you think I should interview or a subject you think I should interview someone about, then drop me a line via the at Twitter account, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk at gmail.com or you could tattoo your chosen guest's name somewhere on your body in large lettering and while wearing summer appropriate clothing assume that people may notice and pass your message on to me rather than just think it's the name of your ex and you can't afford to laser it off or that you know it's ancient celtic for twat as always probably just best to email isn't it hmm. <laughs> And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Cheers to your ears and any other body parts you may listen to this show with. I mean, we're all different. There's every chance that you pick up sound vibrations through your elbow or bum cheeks and filter it to your brain for maximum enjoyment. And who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? I'm merely old, boring ear listener over here and I'll no doubt find myself out of date wearing my headphones as all the kids queue up to buy butt phones. Um, and if this show makes your bum wobble in a pleasing manner, then please do consider donating to the Kofi or Patreon, giving the show a five-star review on any of your frequented pod apps and spreading the word to others that may enjoy this weekly shout. Cheers also to Acast, to my brother Last Skeptic for the plinks and plonks, and to Cat Day for typing up all the linear liner notes every single week. This will be back next week when Anne Widdicombe tries to compare Britain's exit from the European Union to the ending of apartheid, but she shrieks so loudly and high-pitched that she's instead carried away by 500 bats. Every single person. Cheers. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Now That's What I Call Anthems to Turn Your Back To. 40 foreign anthems for the bigger than you to play loudly in your own home and turn your back to. Javi Elskin Death Landed, is it Norway? I don't think so, pal. I'm going to spend my time looking at that overfull dustbin. Don't you fatshi Leno Lorona me, Botswana. I've got this corner to stare at pointlessly. Now that's what I call anthems to turn your back to, volume one. For when the only way to say no to music is to listen to it while making yourself suspect to attacks from behind. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.